Thanks, Jason and Jen, leading us in worship. Thanks, Ken, for leading us in prayer. Ken Forsyth is among uh, four of the four men who are currently elders here at Solid Rock. And uh, most of you already know we're in the process of um, uh, seeing two more uh, elders come on board this year. And we're roughly two to three months in, a 12-month process for that. And um, and some of you have been introduced to David uh, Darlene and Daniel Henderson who are walking through that process. Um, for those who may have missed um, first Wednesday in May and you want to know more about the process and what it means to be an elder and more about these men, I encourage you to go to the, uh, the website and you can find the sermon audio for um, first Wednesday in May um, and you can hear more about that and what God's doing there in, some really, in a really exciting way. So um, I encourage you to go do that. Um, we're going to be in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 uh, this morning as we get ready to launch um, for the summer a, a journey through First and Second Corinthians. Uh, the series this year, if you're new here, let me just invite you into the conversation. The series this year is entitled Letters to the Church, where we are walking through the New Testament books that were originally letters uh, written and circulated among the churches where God spoke through the apostles, primarily Paul, um, to the churches. Uh, and, and a couple things happened in these letters, one of which is God breathed life and encouragement into these churches through the letters and the writings of Paul. Uh, but another thing that God does is he also speaks truth and adds correction to these churches as these letters circulated about. And so um, our approach to this series uh, from the beginning has to place ourselves and our church under the microscope of God's word to ask God to come through these letters written to the church to breathe life and encouragement into our church, but also to bring truth and correction. And so, um, so this, as we move into First and Second Corinthians, there are, there are a couple of themes that are going to come out. Um, through, these, through these letters this summer. Uh, the, at the forefront, what's going to be obvious are the things that, that Paul is calling out and correcting. So there's going to be uh, possibly more uh, correcting than encouragement for the summer. So there's your warning uh, as we go into these letters for the summer. But then there's a backdrop of, of a story that, that helps us understand um, not just what Paul is writing, but the angst behind what he is writing. And so Paul has set up the church in Corinth and then traveled on. And so he's communicating through messengers and letters back to the church. And so he's receiving reports on how things are going, what's happening, what's on the forefront. He's addressing those issues and writing, and writing back. And so one of the primary things that has happened since Paul has left are that outsiders are coming in with an agenda to, uh, to sway the teaching of Jesus. And what they're doing is they're finding a way to work their way up in the leadership bracket in the church to find themselves as leaders to begin teaching and perpetuating a different doctrine, a different gospel. And so since Paul has left, what has happened, these leaders have come in and began to emerge and to find themselves in places of leadership and to teach a different doctrine. Paul is then addressing, and in, uh, in many ways, he's reestablishing himself as a leader in the church through these letters. And it's kind of an odd place to be where Paul wants to make sure that they understand he's received his testimony directly from the Lord Jesus, and therefore it has authority. And so he's reminding them of the authority with which he set them up and taught, but not wanting to exalt himself too much, right? And so there's kind of an awkwardness in Paul's writings that you're going to feel from him in these letters. So with that backdrop, um, Paul's going to go after the issue in chapter 1 just head on. And he's going to talk about division and some examples of division in the church and remind the church of the beautiful unity that has been purchased by Jesus on the cross. 
Let me just kind of give us some, uh, if you will, I'm going to back this up. I'm going to use the front of the stage as kind of an illustration today of categories for understanding how we, um, how we make decisions, specifically spiritual decisions, for ourselves, for our families, and in our lives. And that will help us kind of understand what's happening in the church. So if on this side of the, the stage is the cross represents the gospel as it is, not altered or changed, the gospel as it is, the truth of God's word, unchanged. This is the the place of biblical conviction. It's the place where you open the Bible, you read something, and you go, I understand what it says and what it means for me. I might not necessarily like it, but I can clearly understand it. Therefore, I'm going to submit to it. That's a biblical conviction, okay? Now, as you move across the stage this way and you get into a second category, this is the category I like to call personal conviction, okay? This is a place where um, as we grow in our relationship with the Lord and he speaks to us individually, maybe underneath the mentorship or discipleship of another believer, specific things come up that maybe either aren't addressed in the Bible or aren't as clear. And so therefore, with the Holy Spirit speaking to us, we then, we, we understand personal convictions for me or for me and my household. This is where we land on some things that maybe aren't clear in the scriptures, but still directed by the Holy Spirit and inspired by his word. Personal convictions. I'll give you some examples in a minute, okay? As we move across, though, in the spectrum, we're going to find ourselves in a category which I like to call personal preferences. Now, this is the place where basically I express my own preferences. I prefer this food over that. I prefer this color of carpet over this. I prefer this style of chair over this pew. I I prefer this style of music over this. I prefer, you, you see where I'm going with it, right? Personal preferences not rooted in biblical convictions, not even in necessarily personal convictions in time with the Lord. This is just what I prefer, okay? It's this this mindset that basically it's my world and everybody else lives in it, and so therefore everybody should like what I like and not like what I don't like, okay? Personal preferences. Now, um, ironically, most of church division happens right here, okay? And, And folks who've been in church for a while um, unfortunately, more than likely, you've experienced some of this. This is where churches split and divide most often over the color of carpet, over the style of music, right? Over whether or not we, uh, we do Sunday school or life groups and all these personal preferences over here that the Bible doesn't necessarily address, but it's just how I prefer life to go, okay? So there's the spectrum we're going to be working with today. What's happening uh, is that in the church, these new leaders are emerging and people are beginning to become disciples of these leaders over and above their, uh, their, their, their desire to be discipled by Jesus himself. So in other words, the disciple maker is becoming the Lord to the point where they're beginning to have camps emerge. And I'm in, I'm in Apollos' life group. And women say, well, I'm in, I'm in Cephas' life group. And I follow the teachings of Paul. And I follow the teachings of this person. And so camps are beginning to emerge. Division is setting in. And rather than being unified, the church is beginning to separate the further they get from the cross. So it will be no mistake that by the end of the chapter, Paul's going to call us all back here as he addresses division and where unity truly comes from. So we're going to start in verse 4 of chapter 1. And Paul's going to begin reminding the Corinth Christians who they are and what they have in Christ. Verse 4, I give thanks to my God always for you because of the grace of God that was given you in Christ Jesus, that in every way you were enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge, even as the testimony about Christ was confirmed among you so that you are not lacking in any gift. As you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ, 
who will sustain you to the end. Guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the, excuse me, the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. So this is a common place for Paul to start his letters by reminding the believers who they are and what they have in Christ before going after issues. And so he lists some things here. We'll just walk through them. The first thing is that the grace of God has been given to you, reminding them of that. An unmerited, undeserved, unearned, can't pay it back grace has been given to you. It's yours already. It's yours. Now we can't help when we begin to feel these things we have from Christ, this overwhelming sense of humility when we understand God's grace positions us in a place of humility where all of a sudden, right, we begin to not trust our personal preferences anymore. And so the first thing he mentions is God's grace. Second thing, as he continues on, is this. Uh, He reminds them that they have all, in Christ, been enriched in him, interesting wording, enriched in him in all speech and all knowledge. He's reminding them of the wisdom that has come to them, the unveiling of the truth that has come to them, they didn't find on their own. Matter of fact, he's gonna really go after it in a minute. You didn't bring wisdom to the table. In Christ, wisdom was revealed to you. The knowledge you have, the biblical knowledge you have, the, the, the awareness of what is true versus what is not true, that was gifted to you from God. You've been enriched. Not only that, if you've ever been in one of those conversations where the Holy Spirit takes over, um, I love to hear Believers talk about this, like, I didn't, I was caught off guard, and all of a sudden I just started talking, and, and God used it and started speaking through me. Like, acknowledging that, that that wisdom that was imparted, right, didn't, I didn't wake up this morning with that on my mind. God did that. He enriched that in me. He made me aware of what is true. He, Paul reminds them. That knowledge and that speech that you have that matters was given to you and grown and enriched by God himself. Next thing he mentions is this that you are not lacking in any gift. Um, Now, specifically, I believe that Paul is talking here about spiritual gifts. It's gonna come up again in chapter 12 and 13 and even into 14, where Paul teaches the church and reminds them every believer has a gift. It's when the church comes together, though, that our gifts really start working and edifying and growing the body. And so I think this is a reference because he says you're not lacking in any gift. He's talking to the body as a whole. If you talk to the individual, you're lacking. You've just got the gifts imparted to you But when I look at the church as a whole, you've got all you need. God has gifted you collectively to grow, to bring glory to his name. So he reminds them that they have that in Christ. He reminds them, too, in verse 8, that God will sustain them to the end. That this faith that has ignited salvation for them, this same faith will sustain them. It's kind of like what Paul said to the Ephesians in Uh, Chapter 1, reminding them of spiritual blessings that they have. Paul reminds that when you hear and you believe the gospel, you are sealed with the Holy Spirit of God for the day of redemption. This is where uh, Jude, there's a a single chapter uh, book in the end of your New Testament. Jude writes and talks about how the Lord kept him twice. This is where Paul talks about how he who began a good work in you will also finish it. It's interesting because we're prone, and and I grew up in a church like this, where salvation was based on faith and everything else was based on me and up to me to work hard and grow. And and we'll get to this when we get to Galatians. Paul says, that's not how it works in Christ. You are saved and sustained by him. You already have that. You have it in Christ. Then the next thing he mentions is that you are guiltless. 
you will be considered guiltless in the coming day of our Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, we talked about this. It was really the whole sermon last week, how we as Christians have a good, clear conscience that God has given to us. We don't get it by being good and staying away from things that are bad. If that's, if that's, our, if that's our attempt, we're all going to fail and in the end have a guilty conscience. But our conscience has been cleared and that's been given to us in Christ. Now, as he's mentioning these lists of things that we have, it's by no mistake he ends with this one because it's really going to govern the rest of chapter 1. He ends with this blessing that we have. Verse 9, God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his son, Jesus Christ our Lord. That is rich, strong wording. The church is not a collection of people who necessarily like one another or fit together on the personality chart or, right, collect themselves because they have some certain affinity and hobbies or, or things or they're not necessarily people who gather together because they look the same and they come from the same backgrounds and same educations. You are called into the fellowship of Jesus Christ. And then look at what he says in verse 10 as he gets ready to get fired up over this topic of unity that was purchased for us in our salvation. Verse 10, I appeal to you. I beg you to listen. I'm praying that you would be awakened to hear. I appeal to you, brothers, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, right, the one in whom we have fellowship, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all or all of you agree And that there be no division among you, but that you are united in the same mind and same judgment. Well, that is a challenge in the church, let me tell you. In the best of churches, to all agree, right, and to have the same judgment and mindset on issues. Now, why is that so difficult for the church? Go back to the spectrum. Because we're prone and we're bent towards our personal preferences. Now, it doesn't mean that historically divisions haven't arisen over theology, over what is true. They have. What we're talking about is what most of us experience. And what most often happens is probably even happening in small ways in our church today in small pockets. So it's not this idea that the church is a group of people who who learn how to agree to disagree. The church is not a group of people who are really good at avoiding people who are different from them and just making sure they sit across the room or coming to a different service But the church is marked by those who actually agree and have the same judgment on things and the same mindset. Well, how do we do that? And Paul's going to do it by calling us out of this place of personal preferences to a place of standing, residing, abiding in what is true. That is where our unity is purchased and how our unity will be sustained. Are we all going to have the same personal preferences? No way. Like, I wake up hungry for Mexican food, and by the time lunch gets here, I'm hungry for sushi. Like, I can't agree with myself on personal preferences. How in the world are we going to agree? So then how do we do that? How do we get out of that mindset, navigate well in our personal convictions, but not to the point of division, and land firm and hard on what is true in the Scriptures? So Paul's going to call us to that now. First thing he's going to do is he's going to mention the point of division. And really, this just serves as an example of how easily division can enter into the church through good things. He's going to mention loyalty and baptism. Those those seem like good things, right? 
And so he's going he's to show how even through things that seem good, division can set in when we start to drift away from what is true. And so he, he, he presses one, of the, one example here in who these people are following. So Paul hasn't been here in a while. New leaders are emerging, right? And their people are beginning to follow different people. Verse 11, for it has been reported to me by Chloe's people that there is quarreling among you, my brothers. So I've got the report. Now I'll tell you who I got the report from, just so you're not wondering. Chloe's people brought me this report. And here's what I'm hearing. What I mean is that each one of you says, so you're all doing this. I follow Paul, or I follow Apollos, or I follow Cephas, or I follow Christ. And he's going to turn up the guilt a little bit. Is Christ divided? Did I miss something here? Because what I'm seeing, what I'm hearing about the church is that Christ is somehow divided into camps. Is Christ divided? But then he turns it personal, and that's the struggle for Paul. He wants, to, he wants them to follow his example, his sound teaching, but then he puts himself on the altar and says, but don't follow me too much. Don't be too loyal to me. And here's what he says. Was Paul crucified for you? That's himself. Did I die on the cross for you? The, the, right? No, I didn't. Was Paul crucified for you, or were you baptized into the name of Paul? And then he's going to talk about how baptism itself has become divisive for this church. And he says, I thank God that I baptized none of you except Crispus and Gaius so that no one may say you were baptized in my name. And then it's like he catches himself and he goes, oh, wait a second. There was, there was maybe a few more because he doesn't have the delete button. So he's like, oh, I got to put a little note in here. Well, but, but, verse 16, but I did, I did baptize also the household Stephanus, but beyond that, I don't know whether I baptize anyone else. And so what he's, what he's making here is, is a case not for, um, for devaluing baptism. I think what he's actually pulling out is the irony of baptism is really a declaration of submission and lordship to Jesus, but the baptisms happening in the church in Corinth were, were, were coming across as a submission and a baptism into people's names. They were following these different leaders, and that was an irony Right, And so I don't think he's in any way saying baptism isn't important, but what he is saying, that if baptism ever becomes a divisive issue in the church, we've lost our loyalty to Christ. So much so that he even goes on to say in verse 17, for Christ did not send me to baptize, not primarily why I came. I did some of it. It's important, but that's not primary. It's not ultimate. Here's what is ultimate. Christ did not send me to baptize but to preach the gospel. You see where he's pointing back over here? He's saying, this, this is what you need to be assured of. This is where you need to rest. This is what will sustain your unity to one another. Stay away from personal preferences. It'll divide you every time. And I love what he says here as he talks about preaching the gospel, the last part of verse 17. And a reminder, by the way, and keep in mind, side note, many who were coming in were coming in and they were really good speakers and they were really crafty at putting things together and people were following them because they were engaging communicators. We know that's happening. He actually names one of them later and then we know that in the warnings to Paul and to Titus, he warns that this is gonna happen. People are gonna be drawn with ear tickling, with what sounds good over what is true and it's happening here. And so he reminds them, I didn't do that to you. 
I didn't come in and try to trick you or throw a sales pitch on you or a bait and switch gimmick trip. I just told you plainly and clearly what it was to believe. And he says right here, I came to preach the gospel and not with words of eloquent wisdom, lest the cross of Christ be emptied of its power. As soon as a person tries to adapt it, adjust it, soften it, make it more palatable or seem like, like, like something that feels better, the gospel's been adjusted and the, the power's been removed. The power isn't in how well we talk people into following us. The power's in the gospel and the gospel alone. This is a conclusion that I've drawn so far. As long as our loyalty is to Christ, then our opinions on how to do church will never have more power over our unity with one another. And what I mean by how to do church, the things that are left to decision, the things that the scriptures don't speak real clearly about, okay? As long as our loyalty to Christ is to Christ, our opinions on how the church, on how to do church may differ, but that will never have more power than our unity with one another. Our loyalty to Christ allows us to disagree on some things while still remaining deeply unified. I'll give you a couple of examples. We'll play with a couple of somewhat controversial issues, and I'll just show you um, how this can work for or against the body. So a couple of issues. Let's start with, um, with kids. Um, this is always a fun. You want to you create a hot topic, right? Try to impose your parenting convictions on somebody else, right? And we hopefully have them as parents, right? We have convictions. We have biblical convictions. We have personal convictions. And then we have personal preferences, too, on how to raise kids, and so um, here's an example. Um, I, I've heard this, uh, this is true of some of you even here in our church. When it comes to what you allow your kids to watch on TV, there's a lot of differences somewhere between conviction and preference for families, right? And so I've heard families say, like adults who are Christians say, you know what, in our household, we feel convicted that we're not gonna watch anything as adults that is not okay for our children to watch. Okay? Some of you live by that conviction, I've heard it, it's a fantastic conviction, um, but, but you can't find a verse, right, that tells you to do that. So what is it? That's a personal conviction. You see how that can work? You can be personally convicted. This is what's right and what we're going to do, what the Lord is telling us for our family. But the second we begin projecting that on other people to do it, we're crossing over, right, and our personal convictions are beginning to supersede biblical conviction. Now you can have fantastic personal convictions and you can rest in them. Now, the danger is when we get over here in personal preferences, right? And, and there's room uh, for personal preferences in life. It's called your living room. It's called the car you drive. It's called the clothes that you wear. I mean, you get all kinds of personal preference choices. This is where you're going to go to eat today, what kind of food you're going to eat, whether you get cheese on it or not. Those are personal preferences. You get to have those. But you don't get to impose those on the body of Christ. You see how that works? Now, let me give you another one. This one's a little bit heavier. Hopefully nobody leaves the church over this. Um, alcohol. Let's do this one. This would be fun. So you'll have, um, hopefully if you're a Christian, you have a conviction on alcohol of some sort, whether you choose to drink or not drink, okay? And so you have some folks who 
choose to drink in moderation and prudence and with lots of caution, trying never to offend and never being given to drunkenness, who would say, the Bible never says that, it's not, that you, you can't drink. It's just how you go about it. Okay? True statement. Right? Personally convicted, you could be there. You can also be a believer who says, you know what? I'm personally convicted by the cautions and the warnings of Scripture, by maybe my experience in life, and also by my relationship with the Lord, that I'm convicted not to drink. Just won't touch it. That is a a noble, worthy, personal conviction, right? However, what you can't say and be saying the true thing, saying, saying what is true is the Bible says don't drink, nor can you say the Bible says drink. You see what happens? As soon as you do that, you're twisting what the Bible says. And what happens when we twist what the Bible says? The unbeliever comes to the scripture and says, well, I I mean, at my church, they say you can't drink. And the Bible says not to be given to drunkenness, not to be addicted to much wine, not to be uh, drunk with much wine, but instead to be controlled by the Holy Spirit. And so you're walking through these biblical teachings that are there, and you're saying, well, I can see where you would land there, right? But we have to be cautious on saying this is what the Bible says, okay? Now, don't misinterpret what I'm saying, especially those of you who, like, if you're convicted not to drink, the preacher didn't say, you know, let's go out to, uh, you know, to the restaurant today and tie one on with a couple of pitchers of margaritas. I know what I'm saying. But what I'm saying is this, that there's room to be personally convicted and justly so. It's when we cross over and say, thus says the Bible, that we begin to create division. Okay, and then we can just keep going through controversial topic after controversial topic. I'm sorry, I wish the Bible were more clear. I've studied it thoroughly, and I have yet to find the verse that says you must drink or you must not drink. The Bible teaches prudence and moderation and abstinence where needed for the sake of the gospel and the love of others. That's what the Bible teaches. So it leaves room for personal conviction. Okay? Now, there's just a few examples of we could keep going. Nah, let's don't. All right, so back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. What Paul does then is he then says, hey, let's go back to this conversation, okay? Enough about where division sets in and how following certain people and getting in certain camps. We, we get that. That's where division is. Now let's come back over to the cross, this gospel that has saved, our invitation into God's kingdom. And so he begins in verse 18 with these words. Let me remind you, church, that the word of the cross is folly or foolishness to those who are perishing. It's supposed to seem foolish or antithetical or opposite of the direction of mainstream culture. The gospel is never going to be sexy in its day or time, right? It shouldn't be. If it ever becomes attractive to the mainstream culture, it's probably been adjusted. Let me remind you, church, that what is true, what unites us, is foolishness in the eyes of the world. And then he goes on to say, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Why would we want to mess with it? To those of us who have received its grace and mercy and love and have been transformed by it, why in the world would we ever want to try to massage it or manipulate it into something else? It's the power of God. There's no power in personal preferences. Because they change with the wind. But there's power in the gospel. Verse 19. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the discernment of the discerning I will thwart. 
And then these rhetorical questions. Where is the one who is wise? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of this world? How did he do that? With the cross. Verse 21, for since the wisdom of, for since in the wisdom of God, the world did not know God through wisdom. It pleased God through the folly or foolishness of what we preach to save those who believe. Verse 22, for Jews demand a sign and the Greeks seek wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. And oh, by the way, Christ crucified is a stumbling block for the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. If what we're preaching ever makes sense to the Jews or the Gentiles, we've probably lost the proclamation of the gospel where the real power is. But to those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God, for the foolish of God, foolishness of God is wiser than men, and the weakness of God is stronger than men. Paul is saying, rather than submitting the gospel to our personal preferences or even our personal convictions, instead of trying to dress it up, massage it, instead of doing that, Paul goes to the extreme to remind the church that the, that the gospel and the church that believes it and the church that preaches it will be foolish in the eyes of the world. The gospel will be foolish in the eyes of the world always. And so will the church that believes it, and so will the church that preaches it. Foolishness in the eyes of the world. Um, this was the place in studying for this sermon that the Lord really wrecked me, and I spent a lot of time meditating on God, asking the question, God, show me the foolishness of the gospel. What do you mean by that? And, uh, and so I'm just, just from what Paul's already mentioned, I'm going to list some things that are foolish about the gospel in the eyes of the world. Okay, Just starting with salvation and moving through the, the, the gifts and the benefits we have in Christ. To begin with, the gospel is foolish in the eyes of the world because it saves those who believe it. Emphasis on belief. Not those who earn it, those who pay God back, those who are good little boys and girls, those who make the, the nice list and not the naughty list. The gospel saves those who believe it. That will never make sense in the wisdom of the world. All you have to do is believe. Well, that sounds too simple. Mm -hmm. And that's the gospel. From there, Paul says the gospel is foolish in the eyes of the world because it gives grace to those who don't deserve it. He reminded them of that. It gives grace to those who don't deserve it. It would make sense, or at least more sense in the eyes of the world, to say this, um, God gives grace. Actually, here's the way we hear it. God helps those who help themselves. You know that's not a Bible verse, right? That's wisdom of the world. That makes more sense to the world. God gives grace to those who are working hard to not need it is a translation of that. Okay, that's not the gospel. So the idea that God gives grace to those who don't deserve it, think about it this way. Surely with God's wisdom and foresight and knowledge, it would make more sense for him to give grace to those who in the end are going to get it and be able to pay him back, right? He doesn't. He gives grace to those who don't deserve it and can never earn it or pay it back. That doesn't make sense to the world. Grace is, true biblical grace is a risky thing on God's behalf, isn't it? Right? We don't full out just do this in parenting, Right? Why? Because we don't want to be taken advantage of. We don't want to be run over. We want to set a precedence. These are the rules. This is what happens when you mess up. And, and God, through the gospel, says to us, I love you while you mess up. Come here. 
But true biblical grace is transformational. It's never without effect on us, according to Jesus. I love the parable in Matthew 18 where he's talking about horizontal grace and how if you've received a lot of forgiveness, the first guy who owed a bunch of money couldn't pay back, therefore you must extend it horizontally. Why? The grace of God, the true grace of God, will always transform you and change you. It seems risky to the world. Just giving away grace? People can just walk into God's presence and say, forgive me, and he does? Yeah. That's the gospel. The gospel is foolish in the eyes of the world because it enriches those who have surrendered to it in speech and knowledge. Um, I don't know any other place in our mainstream culture or society where surrender is seen as a good thing. But the gospel enriches and grows and gives knowledge and and even words to speak and empowers those who believe it. The gospel does that. Through surrender. I'll give you an example. So, if all we do is operate in personal preferences and we try to operate the church that way and we say, well, I like this, I like that, I like this, I like that, we're never going to agree. If we, if we, however, we just stop right here in, per, in personal convictions, we're still going to have, we might have harder battles to fight here, right? Here's how it works. So as an individual Christian, I'm pursuing my relationship with the Lord. I'm reading my Bible. I'm praying. God revealed to me, enrich me with knowledge and speech and grow me and impart spiritual gift. I'm reading the Bible and I come across something and I read it and I go, well, that's clear. And if it's true, it doesn't line up with how I'm living my life. And so now I have an option. And so if I choose to surrender to what is true, okay, surrendering is a good thing in that moment. That doesn't make sense to the world, right? If you don't like it, why would you surrender to it? Because by faith we say what? Because we, we trust this more than we trust ourselves. Now think about it. We're going to go, actually, let's wait. We'll get to this in the very end. How goofy it is. To only exist in personal preferences is a goofy, silly, foolish place to live. I'll wait for Paul to bring it up. Here we go. So if we ever find ourselves as a church proclaiming a gospel that makes sense to the lost world, we've lost the gospel. Bottom line. Verse 26, Paul's going to then turn to each individual Christian, and he's going to issue a reminder, a very humbling reminder, of how God invited you into his family. So he says... Verse 26, just to drive the point home, consider your calling. Consider your invitation into the faith. Verse 26, for consider your calling, brothers. Not many of you were wise according to worldly standards. Not many of you were powerful. Not many were of noble birth. But God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are. God just called you a have-not and an are-not. So that no human being might boast or brag or exalt himself in the presence of God. And because of him, you are in Christ Jesus, not because of yourself who became to us wisdom from God and righteousness and sanctification and redemption so that it is written, let the one who boasts or brags or exalts himself, however you want to translate that word, 
Boast only in the Lord. Brag only in the Lord. Stand upon only the truth that is found in Christ. You see how foolish it is to, to live over here? To build a platform of personal preferences. This is, how, this is how the world is to be experienced the best way. And then to stand upon that is really an exaltation of self. It's really a boasting in self when we operate over here. And, and, and really the issue wasn't necessarily that they were exalting Apollos or Cephas or as much as they were boasting in themselves and relying on their own strength and wisdom. And, and Paul just goes after it and says, really? Really? Can I remind you of something? You didn't get into God's family because you were noble or because you were wise, because you came from the right family, or because you had something to offer. Oh, quite the opposite. Let me remind you that God became wisdom for you. He's the one who saved you. And when we understand that, which way does it draw us in the spectrum? Away from me, right? Away from me to the truth that is rooted in the gospel. This is where our unity comes from. And this, over here, the truth of the gospel is what sustains our unity with one another. If we're rooted in the truth of the gospel, we can disagree on personal convictions and still have unity. We can. We can have a robust dialogue about our personal convictions. And at the end, I don't feel the need to sit across from you and worship or come to a different service. We can disagree on what, what we want to show our kids. You know, I stop at PG. Well, I go to PG-13. We can disagree on that all day long and still have a deep, abiding unity because we've been called into the fellowship of, of him, not of one another. The gospel calls us to a unity in Christ that leaves no room for bragging or exalting ourselves. You know, all throughout the summer, um, we're going we're gonna to be in First and Second Corinthians, and, and there, there's going to be a lot of hard conversations that come up. Just They're, they're there. I mean, you can't get around them. Um, and so as we kind of move through the series, what I'm hoping will happen is just a clear distinction of the marks of what it means to be a Christian church. You know, set apart from maybe another organization or maybe another organization that calls himself a church. Like, what does it mean to be Jesus' church? Okay? And so here's the conclusion. And I would say the primary mark of the Christian church is its loyalty to Jesus. It's loyalty to Jesus above all men, theological campgrounds, or denominational affiliations. Now, don't misinterpret what I said. Those, those things in and of themselves um, aren't non-important. They are. Okay? It's where the loyalty lies. What is most important? What is ultimate versus penultimate? The primary mark of the Christian church is its loyalty to Jesus above all men, theological campgrounds, and de- denominational affiliations. Our loyalty to Jesus is revealed in our faithfulness to the foolishness of the cross and our unity towards one another. Pretty, pretty easy litmus test with whether or not we're being loyal to Jesus. Are we standing on what is true biblically? And are we committed in our horizontal relationships? And I'm just quoting Jesus now. The world will know you are my disciples by the way you love one another. That's what he says. By abiding in me, if you're truly abiding in me, you're truly loyal to me, it will play out horizontally in the way you love one another. And if we're existing over here in personal preferences, we're not loving one another. We're loving self. 
Now, here's, what's, here's, here's something good before we go into conclusion. The good news is I'm not aware of solid rock that there's a whole lot of this going on. Like, that's the great news. This is more of God saying, hey, let's check our hearts. Let's prepare ourselves. Let's make sure we don't get here. It's probably on some level in a small way going on I, that I'm not aware of. But, like, this, this message is hard, but it makes me thankful for you. I love looking out and seeing the, the racial diversity, the socioeconomic diversity, the, the, the differences in hobbies and passions and, and where you come from. And I love seeing the different personal preferences mostly. But I love seeing the different personal convictions. And I learn so much from you when you share them with me and what you're doing with your family. And it challenges me. Okay, I love the diversity. But I love that our diversity is built upon our unity in Christ. And we can talk about it. We can even get passionate and heated about certain things. But in the end, we shake hands. We some of us hug and we, we love one another and we mean it. We can never do that if the one place we stand is in personal convictions or personal preferences. We have to stand on biblical convictions. I'm gonna leave us with some questions that, that may challenge you personally or us as a church, just some things to think through. I don't know if you've ever been tempted in this way um, to modify the gospel or um, make it more attractive or sexy in order that people might believe it. But I think there's just a based warning for, theirs, for us as a church. If we ever find ourselves trying to do that, trying to modify the gospel and, and trick people into it or do the bait and switch or you know what I'm talking about, to make it seem more attractive than what we're doing is we're modifying it, making it look more like the wisdom of the world and less like the wisdom of the cross. So there's a warning for us. Whether you're in a life group, you're listening to my preaching, you're listening to the counsel of an elder or another leader here at the church, you're all across the board, Okay, this should be a warning for us to understand that our unity is found in that gospel. Let's don't mess with it. Now, beyond that, on a personal level, uh, maybe, I don't know, in your church experiences, think about this. If, if you've ever had this experience, just think about what happened and how it went down. In your church experience, have you ever witnessed division in the church due to personal preferences or, or maybe even personal convictions? Maybe you've experienced that. Um, if you haven't, praise God, that's awesome, okay? It happens, because we're prone to it. Now, on a more personal level, let me ask you then, have you ever allowed, have you ever allowed a frustration with a person or an offense from a person, have you ever allowed that, uh, maybe somebody violated your personal convictions or preferences, have you ever allowed that to cause division in your unity with that person? Don't say it out loud. I want you to be honest with yourself. Maybe it's happening right now. Okay? Maybe not. But there's a good chance if you're going to become part of Jesus' church as he refines who we are in our humanity, we continue the process of wrestling with flesh. It's probably going to happen. Right? There's no perfect life group where you're going to agree and get along with everybody in the group and everything. Like, it's going to happen. So the, the caution here and the question I'm asking is for you to think back on your spiritual journey, maybe even today, has there ever been a time where you've allowed that to happen? And then the follow-up question is this, are you and I, are we willing to strive to keep our loyalty to Christ and biblical principles as more important, more supreme than our personal preferences and where need be our personal convictions? Now, not asking you to compromise your personal convictions, but not to allow your personal convictions to divide, okay? You see how that works? Personal convictions are a place where the Lord said, don't drink. Well, you should never feel coerced. I've got to drink if I'm going to have unity. No, it's goofy. It's not all we're saying. What we're saying is I can have unity with somebody who has a different personal conviction, okay? Unity. 
Are you and I willing to strive to keep our loyalty to Christ, his gospel, the truth of scripture, biblical principles as more important than personal preferences and personal convictions? See, that was the problem here. It wasn't so much that, because Paul's going to say later in the letter, follow me as I follow Christ. There's a need to be discipled and mentored in the faith. Paul wasn't at all saying you shouldn't have leaders or have people speaking into your life. What he was talking about is when your loyalty to the person becomes more important than your loyalty to Christ. And so our strive should be to keep Christ and his gospel as premier, primary, supreme. And from there, then underneath that umbrella, we can disagree on things and still love each other and mean it. All right. Let's end here um, with just a charge. Let us remember our calling, brothers and sisters. We weren't called because we were wise, powerful, or noble. Let us maintain the unity of the fellowship of Christ by submitting ourselves to Christ, by submitting ourselves to the word of God. Let the one who boasts, boast only in the Lord. Um, I'm gonna pray in just a minute and our our worship team and our prayer partners are gonna come forward. And let me just say to you today that if you're here today and you're not a Christian, Um, Let's go back to the the foolish gospel that we believe. And I want you to know that we want the gospel to sound too good to be true to you and too easy. Okay, that's because that's the real gospel. Where Jesus says to, I love you in your undeservedness. I love you in your inadequacy. I love you in those moments where you can't get it right. I don't help those who help themselves. I help those who can't help themselves. And I want to offer that grace to you today. And if you're here today and you have not trusted Jesus as your personal Savior and Lord, I'm going to invite you to do so today. And it has to take place in your heart, okay? You don't, it's not a certain special place in the room or a special person. It's you being with the Lord and saying, I believe. I believe that you died on the cross for my sins and have resurrected from the dead to bring me forgiveness and eternal life in this beautiful relationship. I want it. You can do that where you're seated. Just Feel free. If you want to just stay seated when we stand to sing, stay seated, praying to God yourself. You could come grab a prayer partner, and they'd love to go pray with you and talk with you about what it means to have a relationship with Jesus. But we want you to know that is the invitation into the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray together as our worship team comes forward and our prayer partners come forward. They'll be at the front and at the back, um, so feel free to move about the room. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for um, giving us such good news. God, for giving us this beautiful invitation into your kingdom that goes beyond what, God, what we could imagine, what we deserve or could ever pay back. God, thank you for calling us back to that gospel message as a foundation for our unity. God, I pray for Solid Rock Church as we go forward into this journey you have for us that we God, by your grace, would maintain a fidelity and a faithfulness to the true gospel. That God, in in our disunity or in in moments of disagreement, we would be quick to submit ourselves first to the the cross in your word. Father, I pray now for any person who doesn't know you as as a loving, heavenly father, that today would be the day that they would come to you to take your hand and to take the grace and mercy you so freely give. God, that by believing today, they might become saved, become yours, be given this new life and this new heart and this new mindset, this beautiful new awakening to what is true. 
So Father, now come do what only you can do. We ask your Holy Spirit to move among us, convict us, and call us to response. We pray in Jesus' name.